This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We have at Elkdale over the last six weeks, uh, walking through a series of sermons, looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself in this proclamation of I am. He will say, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the light of the world. And with each one of those statements, he is describing himself. He is describing his reason for coming. He is describing our need for him. And ultimately, he is pointing us to the fact that that we are in need of salvation. We are in need of rescuing from our sin. We are in need of a relationship with God and that Jesus is the way. In fact, he will tell us in two of those I am statements even more clearly, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, meaning he is access and salvation alone to God. And and last week for Easter, we looked at uh, John chapter 11, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning that he is the answer to death. He is the one who holds the keys to eternal life. And so, By surveying those I am statements, we've spent most of our time over the last few weeks just staring at Jesus, just looking at Jesus, hearing the words again of Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to just kind of finish this series by uh, putting in front of you how we should respond to the great I am. What should be our response to Jesus as we have looked at and studied and seen him say, I am? What should we do now with this knowledge of Christ? Well, in Luke chapter 7, we find a scene, a story, a a part in the life of Jesus where he's been invited into a home for dinner. And while he's in this home, there is a crowd that is watching, and, and there seems to be three characters in the story that take the center of Luke's writing. There is Jesus, of course, and then there is a Pharisee named Simon, And then there is a woman whose name is not given. And we see in these two people, as they approach Jesus, two different responses. And in those two different responses, we see ultimately how every single person ever created, ever birthed, ever walked on this earth since Adam and Eve, every single person will make one of two decisions when it comes to Christ. They will receive him by faith and be saved. They will hear the I am statements of Jesus and declare it is true. He is who he says he is. He has done what he said he will do. He alone is the Savior. And then there are those who will turn from him, who in their own pride and selfishness and self-righteousness will say he is not the way, he is not the truth. And in their rejection of Jesus, they will leave themselves condemned. We find in this story the two responses to Jesus. You have your copy of God's Word. You've turned on your device. Look with me at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. And I will read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kisses, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, and she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are forgiven, for she loved much. But who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask you now, Lord, to please, uh, through the power of technology, as this sermon, as this proclamation of your good news is being watched on devices and tablets and computers and TV screens. And Father, some are watching now on Sunday and some are watching on replay and some are watching in the break room at work or in the cab of their truck or at their kitchen table. Some are watching in the nursing home and in the hospital room. Father, we pray that as they're tuning in and watching and hearing your word, that it would be bread of life to them. Your word, Father, would nourish our souls, that our eyes would be lifted, that our hearts would be encouraged, that our our legs that wobble in these uncertain times would be shored up, Father. God, show us who Jesus is again and show us that how we are to respond to him. Father, I pray for the one who's, who does not know Jesus, who's asking questions, who's inquiring, who's looking into who is this Jesus. I pray this morning. By the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, their eyes would be opened, the scales would be removed, and they would see Jesus as the great I am, the Savior of the world, sent to rescue sinners, and they would, Father, respond to him. Lord God, bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have in this text uh, a dinner party, a banquet. It was not uncommon that in those days when a visiting rabbi, which Jesus would be in that category, having his disciples with him, would come into a village or a town, then Pharisees, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, they were the keeper of the Jewish faith, they were the moral standard in the community. The Pharisee in the community might invite the traveling rabbi or the visiting professor, if you will, to come and dine at his banquet table. And and the way that the, the culture was set up, it would be an open banquet. It would be a a courtyard and and those in the village who were not necessarily invited to sit and eat would still be allowed to lean in the window, to gather around the courtyard, to to peer at the privileged guest at the table, to overhear the conversation. And so what we have is we have this Pharisee that has invited Jesus into his home. Now, we're not certain if his motivation is to uh, uh, out Jesus as a fraud or a fake or if he's truly in Inquiring, but we will see as the story unfolds that his mind is not turned towards Jesus, that his heart is not turned in affection towards Jesus, and that in fact he is continuing in his 
sin. But this setting would allow for this crowd, which would allow for this woman to be uh, there in the midst of the crowd. But I want you to see in the text that, that as we follow these two characters, this Pharisee and this woman, and how they respond to Jesus, I want you to see a vast difference in their uh, responses to Jesus. They have both heard the great I Am speaking. They've both seen uh, and experienced uh, who He is and what He said, and, and certainly they've gotten accounts of His miracles. And so they, they both come to Jesus with the knowledge of, of what they've been told about Him and what they've heard and what they've seen, and yet they both make radically different decisions with their life when it comes to how they respond to Jesus. And so I want you to see these differences. We'll do a kind of a compare and contrast. And so the first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the Pharisee's blindness versus the woman's brokenness. The Pharisee's blindness versus the woman's brokenness. Look with me at the beginning of the story again. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman the city, in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she uh, excuse me, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who what sort of woman this is and who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now what we have here, first of all, is we have the Pharisee's blindness uh, of what's going on. And in fact, we see his blindness in kind of two particular ways. First, he's blind to who Jesus is. He has invited Jesus into his home. He calls him rabbi or teacher, but he does not uh, plan to give him any respect. He does not plan to address him as the great I am or the Messiah. He does not recognize Jesus for who he is. In fact, we, we have this little bit of a quandary here. He, he discovers or he believes that he's figured out that Jesus is a fraud based on the fact that Jesus is allowing this, this woman, this sinner, uh, to touch him. Now, what's interesting in the passage is the Bible says that, that the Pharisee thinks to himself, which means he doesn't say it out loud, he's not voicing this, but he thinks to himself, if Jesus were truly a prophet, if he truly were miraculous, if he truly were God in the flesh, then he would know what sort of woman, this woman of the street, this woman of the night, this woman who is infamous in her sin, what sort of woman is touching him. And if he knew what sort of woman was touching his feet, he would certainly make her stop. But because he's not made her stop, he must not know who she is. Therefore, he must not be a prophet. Now, here's the problem. He does not see Jesus' power. He doesn't believe that Jesus can know this woman or know her future or know her past or know all of her sins. He does not believe that Jesus can see everything as God in the flesh can do. He does not believe in the power of Jesus as the prophet, the one who knows all things. He does not understand that Jesus was the one who created this woman. He does not understand that Jesus knows everything about her, including the forgiveness he's about to give her. He does not recognize the power of Jesus, but he also doesn't see the purpose of Jesus. 
You see, my friend, if he really knew who Jesus was, if he really understood who the Messiah is, then he would understand that the Jesus that the Bible gives us, the glorious picture of the Son of God, is one who in fact allows sinners to touch him. You see, if he really knew Jesus, he would know that Jesus is the one who said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. The sick need a doctor. He's the one who came to rescue the brokenhearted. If he really knew who Jesus was in his power and in his purpose, he would know that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And that's why he came to rescue us. But oh, friend, he has no knowledge of Jesus. He does not understand a God who rescues sinners. He does not understand the grace and the mercy of the God who sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believe in Him will not die but have everlasting life. He does not see Jesus as the Savior of sinners. He is blind to Jesus. There is something interesting also about His blindness. Not only is He blind to Jesus, He's blind to Himself. Look with me at verse 40. Jesus says, and Jesus answering him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, we've got to see the irony in verse 40. In verse 39, it says that Simon thought to himself, if Jesus knew. Simon thought about what Jesus should know. And in verse 40, Luke records for us that Jesus does know what Simon is thinking. Jesus does know what he's not saying out loud. Jesus is a real prophet. He really is God. He really does know what's going on in every detail around him. Because the Bible says in verse 40, Jesus answered the question that Simon never said out loud. Jesus is who he says he is, but that's just the part of the irony of the gospel and the good news of Christ, that he knows everything, even when we think he does not. And in verse 40, notice what Jesus does. He says, I got something to tell you. And so Simon answers, say it, teacher. So verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay them, he canceled the debt of both. And now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose, he begrudgingly answers, we must note, the one I suppose who's had the greatest debt forgiven. Now here is the interesting part of this text. Simon does not understand his own sin. You see, the parable that Jesus tells about the canceling of the debt is not an idea of about who has the most sin. It is a parable about awareness of sin. You see, whether you have $500 of debt or $50 of debt, you're still in debt. Whether you have one sin against God or a multitude of sins against God, you are still a sinner against the God in heaven. And so what he is doing is he's pressing Simon to see, yes, this woman is famous in her sin. And yes, we all know about her flesh and what everyone in this city thinks of her. But Simon, she may in your eyes be a great debtor, but brother, don't miss it. You too are a debtor. Your sin, Simon, might be pride and self-righteousness and religion versus relationship, but in fact, it is still a sin. Simon was blind to his own sinful nature. He was blind to the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He was in his own high castle of morality looking about and seeing all the reasons for the people around him why he was better than they, and yet he did not see that he should compare himself to a holy God. And notice that he doesn't see his own blindness. He doesn't see that he is in need of forgiveness. But we contrast that with the brokenness of the woman. The Bible records for us, uh, that she was a sinner, that she was famous in her sin. In fact, she was such a sinner. Uh, in verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
Like we are aware that she's defined by this, that this is her, her, or her aura, this is who she is, that she carries this weight. She knows that she is a sinner, and she knows that she has great sins in her life, and they are famous sins, if you will. And she knows what they all think of her. She knows what the Pharisee certainly thinks of her. If he knew that she was in the crowd, he would have not let her in the banquet for certain. And so we know that she understands her sin. And yet in the midst of all of her shame and all of her sin, she comes into Jesus and gets to his feet. She gets to the very feet of the Savior. She stands there in front of Jesus, and the Bible records that she begins to weep. That there is brokenness in her spirit, that she understands she's a sinner, that she understands she needs Jesus. And the tears begin to fall, and they fall on the feet of Jesus. And then in humility, she sees what she's done with her tears, and she bends down and begins to dry his feet with the locks of her hair. And then in an outburst of emotion, she begins to kiss his feet. And finally, she concludes her brokenness by breaking open her ointment and pouring it on his feet. She is lavishing herself as worship to the Lord, knowing that her sins have been forgiven. Now, we should understand that just prior to this event, Jesus had been teaching. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you read them chronologically, you will find in Matthew chapter 11 that prior to this event, Jesus just got through preaching, come to me all you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And certainly this woman who is in turmoil over her sin, who is in turmoil over the reputation that she has in the city, who is the outcast of all who look upon her, who has been abused and used by everyone in the vicinity, this woman is in need of forgiveness and rest. And she hears the words of Jesus. And possibly when she heard those words, she gave her life to him. She said, this is the man I will follow. This is the Messiah come from heaven. And so what we see is her response to Jesus' brokenness. She is broken. And notice what brokenness does before Jesus. She is not concerned with her safety anymore. She does not care what the Jewish leader will say. She does not care what the guards of the banquet will do to her. She has recklessly come to Jesus and Jesus alone. Brokenness responds to Jesus. It says, I must get to Jesus. There's nowhere else to look. She is not worried about her pride, not with her hair wiping the feet of the dusty roads of desert off of Jesus. She is not uh, holding to her possessions. This ointment certainly could have been of great value. It could have been a family heirloom. It could have been something that was passed down for her. Certainly in the job that she had, she was not a wealthy woman. And so to, to spill this type of ointment, this type of perfume would have been costly to her. But she did not care because of brokenness. She comes to Jesus laying everything on the line. She did not care about her living Possibly this ointment was used in order to give her a fragrance that would attract those that would call upon her services as a woman of the city. But yet she is turning from that lifestyle. She did not care about her identity. She did not care about the sin that she carried. What she cared about was getting to Jesus. Why? Because she heard his words and it broke her heart. Oh friend, listen to me. The response we must have to the great I am is not pride, it is not, the, it is not a, a, a blindness to our own sin and looking down upon others. It is brokenness to say that the Father in heaven has sent Jesus to save us and we must in our sin fall at the feet of 
Jesus. We see the contrast between the two. We see the Pharisee in his blindness and the woman in her brokenness. But secondly, I want you to see another uh, contrast between them. Not only do we see the blindness and the brokenness, but we see in the Pharisee pride and in the woman praise. Look how the story continues in verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And so it's interesting that Jesus is looking at the woman, but he's addressing Simon. The woman has now got his attention. The woman is now worshiping correctly. The woman is now the one who Jesus' affection is turned towards. And he says in verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss My feet, verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In this, Jesus shows us the great roadblock to salvation. The great roadblock to salvation, brothers and sisters, is pride. It is self-righteousness. It is believing that we can do it on our own. It's believing that we are morally okay. It is believing that we will fix ourselves. And in this case, the Pharisee in his pride has treated Jesus not as the Messiah sent from God, not as the great prophet from heaven, not as the one who's come to rescue him from his sin, but he's treated Jesus with contempt, thinking to himself, I don't need this rabbi. I don't need his teaching. I don't need his power or his presence. I and myself am morally able to fix my own problems and sins. And here we have the root of everything that separates us from God. It is pride. It is to think that you are able to rescue yourself. And so what does he do? He treats Jesus with contempt. Now it is customary in this desert climate of Palestine, as they walked from place to place, the roads would be dusty, the sandals on their feet would become encrusted with dust. Certainly the aroma of body odor would flow in the heat of the desert. So it was customary when a guest came to your home that a basin of water was put out, uh, that some servant would wash the feet of the guests, would wash the hands, maybe wash the face in order to prepare them for the meal. They would anoint them with oil in order to give them a soothing calming, also maybe to mask the smell of the odor of must that would flow from a a body that's been sweating in the desert. It would bring a perfume to the room. This was customary and to give a kiss of greeting, a welcome, such as we would shake a hand or hug when someone walks into our home. And so this is how you were to treat someone in which you respect or honored or welcome. And yet this Pharisee did none of that for Jesus. Why? Because he was prideful. He was prideful and he would not follow Jesus. He believed that he was the authority of religion, that the authority of morality, and he did not need this rabbi from Nazareth to rescue him. But he did not understand that this was no regular rabbi or prophet. This was the Son of God sent to save him. But we notice that while the Pharisee had pride, the woman had praise. Notice what the Bible tells us. She couldn't control herself. She starts crying on his tears. She starts wiping his feet with her hair. She starts pouring out her ointment. She won't stop kissing his feet. She has taken over the banquet. The conversations and the debates and the theology and the doctrine and all of the high talk of the morality of the Pharisee that I'm sure was trying to ask Jesus gotcha questions or hard questions or inquiz Jesus in order to entrap him. All of that is washed away. Why? Because worship has broke out. Because praise has entered the room. She has heard the words of Jesus. She has believed Jesus is who he says he is. And she's begun to respond in praise. And her praise is what she has to offer. 
She does not offer Jesus much, but she offers him much in the worldly sense, but she offers him everything she has, her whole being. She is, as Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, offering herself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. She has poured out her ointment. She has poured out her tears. She has poured out her pride. She has fallen on her knees. And she does not care what the crowd around her may think or say. She knows every bit of her past, but she has found Jesus who has changed her life, and she will praise him. She will do nothing but praise him. She does not care what they think. She does not care about the cost. She does not care about what the culture demands. She will praise Jesus. She will stand boldly in the midst of all of those that are walking a different direction, and she will praise Jesus. While the culture around her would say, try to keep the law, be moral, look at the Pharisee and his religion and his ritual, she will fall on her feet and weep at Jesus. Why? Fall on her knees and weep at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because praise has grabbed her heart. Salvation has changed her. We see in this text the contrast between the pride of the Pharisee who would not even offer Jesus the customary greetings to this woman who will offer anything she can in order to praise Jesus with her whole being. There is a difference between pride of religion and praise from relationship. And so, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you and warn you, hope that you never find yourself thinking that your religious acts are pleasing to God. God desires someone who responds in praise to his words and his power and his salvation. It is not morality that God desires, it is praise that has met him. And when we walk with Jesus and when we praise Jesus, morality will come, ethics will rise, we will be as the king calls us to be, but he desires for us not to hold on to some sort of pride in religion, but to fall in praise of a relationship. And so we find this response drastically different. And then finally, I want you to see a third and final contrast, and that's simply this. I want you to see the Pharisee's fate and the woman's faith. The Pharisee's fate and the woman's faith. You see, the story comes to a climax. It reaches its point. It finds its ending. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now here we find two different endings to the story. Uh, The first ending is the one that's unspoken. The first ending is the one that Jesus does not say by omission. The first ending would be the ending of the Pharisee. The fate of the Pharisee. You see, we, we do not have that the Pharisee uh, turned to Jesus. We do not have that the Pharisee repented. He held on to his pride. He stayed in his moral way. He would not give himself over to the feet of the Messiah that sat in front of him. He, he thought to himself, I will do it my own way. I will find my own path. I will please God in my own pride. And with his blindness and in his pride, he finds himself at a fate that will lead to destruction. You see, what Jesus did not say to him, what is unspoken, we can certainly know from the Scripture. We can know from surveying the Bible what happens to those who don't turn to Jesus. While he looked at the woman and said, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. The words that would be spoken over this Pharisee at the day of his last breath, when he did not repent, when he did not turn to Jesus, would be simply this, I didn't know you. You didn't follow me. 
You didn't cry out to me. In your pride, you tried to do it on your own. And so here's what I give you. Your sins are not forgiven. You may not go in peace and instead you will spend eternity in torment being punished for the sins that you committed, ultimately the sin of rejecting Jesus the Savior. You see, brothers and sisters, listen to me now. There is sin all over this room. There is sin of the woman of the flesh that the whole city knows about her sin. There is the sin of the Pharisee of pride and self-righteousness and, and moral authority, but yet not crying to Jesus for his, for his rescuing. There is sin all over the room. And the beautiful thing about this picture is, is that Jesus is in the house and he's offering himself to both of them. And then in fact, when we see the, the sin of the woman, these fleshly sins, these grievous sins, the ones that we list at the top of our list of, of bad activities, we find that Jesus' grace covers all of those sins. And yet, just like the prodigal son and the older brother, he offers his grace to both of these characters, and one in his pride will reject him. And brothers and sisters, to reject Christ is to be without pardon. It is to be without salvation. It is the only sin in which God will not forgive. To reject His Messiah is the sin in which will cause you uh, condemnation for all eternity. And so we hear by omission the words that Jesus would say to this Pharisee on the day of His death, I do not know you. You might say to me, Lord, Lord, but I do not know you. Depart from me, not in peace, but in torment. But because of His fate, that's where He will end His journey. But because of her faith... Her answer was a lot different. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now I want you to notice something here. We notice that she has lavished love upon Jesus. He says to her, you have loved much. You are forgiven. And if we're not careful, we can think that somehow she is saved because of the acts that she's performed. That she's saved because she broke her ointment, because she cried her tears, because she kissed his feet. But that is not the case, because if you look in verse 50, Jesus tells us exactly why she's been saved. He says in verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. And so he's making it very clear that it was not her actions that saved her, but her faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It's believing that he is the Savior, that he alone can rescue you, that there is no other place to turn but to Jesus, that he is the one who came to save you. You come to the end of yourself and you cry out to Jesus saying, you and you alone can save my soul and bring peace into my life and forgive me of my sin and rescue me even after death. That is faith. But when you come to that faith, when you find that Jesus has saved you, when you feel the overwhelming rush of the Holy Spirit that enters your soul and cleanses your heart, then you, brother or sister, will know that you are saved because your acts of love will be evident. You see, we are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by faith which produces works. We are not justified by faith alone, excuse me, we are justified by faith alone, but our faith will work. It will do something. It will move. It will respond. I think about it this way. Before I was old enough to respond to my parents, they loved me. Before I realized how to say words, how to do acts of kindness, how to hug, they loved me. They served me. They displayed their love for me. And so as I became older and experienced their love, not that I had earned it, but I began to respond to it. I did not earn the salvation of Christ. He did this for me. 
By faith, I believe that he is the Messiah. By faith, I believe he is the one who's come to rescue us and take us into heaven and bind us to the Father for all eternity. But because of what Jesus has done for me, I want to do acts of love. I want to experience a life that displays a faith that shows I have met Jesus. And when we do this, let us note it will be a witness. Think about this woman's witness. She went from being a woman of the street, of the city, one that had a, a, a reputation of filth next to her name, to being the center of attention in a banquet where Jesus declares, look at her, she's the kind of woman that gets into the kingdom. What a witness to a lost and dying world that those that need to hear the gospel will hear. You don't get into the kingdom by acting like a moral Pharisee, self-righteous and full of pride. You get into the kingdom by being a sinner that's been redeemed and praising the Lord Jesus Christ in acts of love. That's our witness. That's how we proclaim the good news. Look what Jesus has done to me and for me and through me. This is the good news. And so we find this woman. Uh, make no mistake now, when Jesus says you are forgiven, these are not cheap words. This is not a trinket response of Jesus. This is not a Hallmark card statement. When he says your sins are forgiven, he knows that the cross is coming. He knows that he will die for her sins, that he will be buried in a tomb for her sins, and that he will rise again on the third day for her sins, but he will feel the wrath of God. So think about it for just a moment, not to get too sully, not to get too lost in the unknown details of the story, but understand when Jesus looks at this woman and says, your sins are forgiven, that the day in which he will be nailed to the cross, every one of her sinful transactions of the night will be laid on his shoulders. Every one of her filthy thoughts and evil acts and sinful behaviors and brokenness, every single sin she's ever committed that the whole city knew about. When he says you are forgiven, he is saying, I will take those to the cross. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus looks at you and says, you are forgiven, he is saying to you, every sin you've committed, I will take to the cross. Those are not cheap words. And what do we get in return? Peace. Go now in peace. You're no more in torment over your sin. God has forgiven you. You don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live with shame. You can proclaim the good news from every mountaintop. Jesus Christ has rescued you. Go, my sister, he would say in so what are we to do with this message? How do we respond to the great I am? Well, quickly, let me just tell you how you respond. When you study Jesus, when you look at Jesus, when you hear of the story of Jesus, here's how you are to respond. You should respond with brokenness and not blindness. Be broken over your sin. Understand how filthy you are, how far from God you are, how holy he is, how messed up this world is, how messed up our lives are, how quickly we are to sin and run into the flesh, how broken we should be over our sin, because in our brokenness we can see his glory. We can see his goodness. We can meet his great grace. Be broken over your sin, not prideful or blind towards it. How do we respond to the great I am? We are broken over our sin we respond with praise and not pride. We worship Him. Every time you feel a, a, a lull in your praise of Jesus and your effort to love Jesus and your willingness to witness for Jesus, just remember what He did for you at Calvary. Just remember the evil sins that He took to the cross. Just remember what He took from your dark soul and nailed them to that cursed tree. Just remember and begin to praise Him. 
Praise Him in every area of our life. I realize that the story comes to an end and Jesus would move on and this woman would go back to her life. But I bet that every time she saw that broken jar on her mantle, she thought of the sins that Jesus had forgiven. I bet every time she washed her feet, she remembered the Savior's feet. Every time she combed her hair, she remembered wiping them with with the locks from her head. I believe that every time she rubbed her mouth, she would remember kissing His feet and hearing Him say, You are forgiven, God. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Remember your forgiveness and praise the Lord. And then finally, not only should we be broken over our sin and praise the Lord for His forgiveness, finally, we should walk by faith. Faith is trusting that Jesus has done it. Jesus has secured our salvation, that He will carry us all the way through. Faith begins with a birth. In John 3, it tells us that to be saved, you must be born again. You must have God change your heart. Faith begins by asking Jesus to save you, to rescue you, to look to Him alone and nowhere else, to admit, like the Pharisee would not do, but the woman would, that you are a sinner in need of His salvation, that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that He alone is the resurrection and the life. You faith means starting by turning and trusting Jesus, but then faith means walking with Jesus, believing that He's done what He will do, and that we don't have to worry or work or 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 be fearful that we will somehow lose our salvation because faith says it's in Jesus, and Jesus never fails. We must receive Him by faith. In 1830, George Wilson was convicted. Arrested, convicted, tried, and sentenced to hang for stealing from the mail. And after some lobbying of his friends and family to Andrew Jackson, the president at the time, Andrew Jackson offered him a pardon. But to the surprise of everyone, uh, George Wilson rejected the pardon. He would not receive it. And so the, the system of law didn't know what to do. Should he be hanged or should he be let go? He did not take the pardon, but he was given the pardon. And so they they went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court wrote an opinion, and, and ultimately the opinion went like this. The pardon is a piece of paper granting uh, forgiveness of the crime, but it cannot be enacted, it cannot be received, it cannot be granted unless the one who's been pardoned takes the gift. Now, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we see in the story. That Jesus has come and offered a pardon to the Pharisee and to the woman. One received it by faith, and he says, Go, your sins are forgiven, be at peace. And one in pride rejected him and did not receive him. And we hear in the words of omission, On the day of his death, he would proclaim, Lord, Lord. And Jesus would say to him, depart from me, for I do not know you. Oh, brothers and sisters, would you respond to the great I am? Would you respond with brokenness and praise and faith, declaring Jesus is who he says he is, and he has done what he said he will do, and he alone is the Savior. This is the call from the text, that we would respond to the great I Am. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for those that are listening and watching. Lord, if they don't know you, 
If they've never responded to the great I am, then Father, they're in the category of the Pharisee. They sit in judgment over you and they think that they're right. They think that they can figure it out later. They think in their morality or their religion or their ethics that they're going to be okay, that that they're better than their neighbor. Their sin is not as great as some. And so they they find themselves believing that in pride and in blindness uh, that they'll be okay. But Lord, I pray right now you would just press on their heart. You would press on the heart where where that's going to lead them where that decision is going to take them, where fate's going to direct them right into punishment for all eternity. And so, Father, I pray they would see this woman and they would see her example and they would know that faith means coming to Jesus and pouring out your life to Jesus and and turning from who you were and who you are and declaring that Jesus alone is the one who can save you. Praising Him. Being broken over your sin and by faith receiving Him. And Lord, for all of those who call themselves believers, for those of us who, who have already come to you by faith, may we, may we constantly be reminded of the sin that you've forgiven us of. May we constantly be a people who praise you and do acts of love towards you that the world will look at us and say, who are they that they feel forgiven? What have they found that we would have that? Lord, may we be a witness for you. And all that we do because of what you have done for us. And remind us, Father, often that when you say to us, you are forgiven, that is also saying to us that you will take our sins to that cross. That you have taken our sins to that cross. That when you looked at her and said, your sins are forgiven, you were taking every one of her filthy acts to the cross. God, remind us that our forgiveness was not cheap. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for loving us and sending Jesus Christ to save us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.